Well, for some reason, people just love sports. Every culture throughout the world has their favorite ones. Here in America, of course, we love our football, baseball, basketball. Some people, hockey. And people love sports so much, sometimes they just make them up. Here's some real sports around the world. One is called Octopush. It's a mix between, well, it's just underwater hockey, rather. There's Sepak Takrao. It's from Thailand, and it's a cross between volleyball and hacky sack. There is cheese rolling in England, which is where they roll a wheel of cheese down a steep hill, and a bunch of guys just try and catch it. First one wins. <laughs> there is chess boxing, which apparently is real, where you play chess for four minutes, then box for two minutes, then back and forth until there's checkmate or knockout. And then a real sport you probably won't find on ESPN is dwarf tossing or whatever it's worth. Needless to say, people love sports, and you read your New Testament, you get the feeling that the Apostle Paul loves sports too. He sure does use them a lot and talk about them a lot. At the very least, he knew a lot about them. He mentions boxing, wrestling, fighting, the Olympic Games. But of them all, what sport does he pick on the most in his writings? Racing. Of all the sports of the ancient world, when it comes to building an analogy for the Christian life, there's nothing just beats good old-fashioned foot racing. And we're going to come to find Paul tap into this familiar analogy once again in our passage for this morning. It's found in Philippians chapter 3, so you can open your Bibles if you brought one or find a pew Bible in front of you to Philippians chapter 3 again. For many weeks, we've been studying this passage in Philippians 3. We've gone through verses 1 through 11. So far, it's been a helpful passage in helping us understand the nature of true salvation. Paul gets very autobiographical here, talks almost entirely about himself. But it's still helpful because the pattern of salvation is reflected in his experience. In combating false teachers and guiding the church in the truth, Paul reflects on his own past because he used to be one of them. He used to rely entirely on self, subscribing to a system of works righteousness to justify him before God. But in meeting Christ and coming to know Christ, Paul realized how his self-righteousness was entirely worthless before God. He spent his whole life storing up this, this currency before God of works righteousness and came to find out God doesn't accept it. It's like fool's gold to him. But at the same time, he came to see what Christ offered him, both the complete forgiveness of sins and perfect righteousness. And these are available as a gift to all who would place their faith in Christ alone. And in realizing this truth, Paul was set free. He was free from the burden of the law as he cast down all of his accomplishments, counting them all as loss, that he might gain Christ and Christ alone, and that is enough. So Paul came to know the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the perfect righteousness we need to stand justified before God It's available for free, by grace, to all who would place their faith in Christ. Now, all that being said, where we've come so far, it's very possible that some might take all this to mean that that Paul is, is teaching that he had arrived, that he had reached total spiritual perfection. Okay, so you're saying we're perfectly righteous in Christ. Okay, so, so we're, we're done. We're saved. We're done. We're, we're good to go. That's the end of it. In fact, we can even do whatever we want now because we're, we're, we're righteous, we're justified, we're saved. We can just kind of live how we please now, right? There were actually some who believed that. 
Some in the Corinthian church were buying into this warped concept of spiritual perfection in Christ, taking it to mean basically like, well, we've arrived, we're, we're done now. Some reason that the mature believer is beyond sinning. Others twisted this notion of perfectionism into a license to sin. And in case you didn't know, Corinth is not too far from Philippi. And whether or not people like this were in the church of Philippi, we don't know for sure. But either way, in the next passage, verses 12 through 16, Paul spent some time following up this teaching on our righteousness in Christ with, you could say, a little disclaimer, warding off any misconceptions about this notion of perfectionism. Are we perfect in Christ? The answer is yes and no. I know you might hate those, those like yes and no answers, but it's just how it is. Yes and no. Depends what you mean. Clarification is needed. And without clarification, though, dangerous error is right around the corner where some can turn God's grace into a license to sin. So we find then in this passage some much needed clarification on how to understand the Christian life after you've come to Christ, how, how do you live it, what it's about, what changes, what doesn't change, and more. And we find some helpful instruction in, in Philippians 3, 12 through 16. So why don't we begin by just reading that passage, follow as I read Philippians 3, 12 through 16, right after speaking of, of the righteousness we receive in Christ. He says, verse 12, in the resurrection of the dead, he mentions, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. I think this passage showcases for us, if we were to boil it down, three necessities for running the Christian race. Three necessities for running the Christian race, rather. In verses 1 through 11, we, I think, have pretty thoroughly covered what it means to come to Christ. We've covered salvation, how you, how you begin this race. But next, we find some helpful teaching on, on what it means to run it and, and how you do it. And so let's explore these three necessities to, to run this race of faith that you might run your race with endurance and finish. First, number one, you need the right realization. You need the right realization. What realization are we talking about? Well, simply put, that, that you haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. Look at verse 12 again. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And he says again, verse 13, very similar. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Paul starts off this, disc this disclaimer here and he, he repeats himself emphatically that despite all that he does have in Christ, he hasn't arrived. He still hasn't quite arrived. Arrived at what? At perfection, at, at Christ-likeness. What is the goal of our Christian life? God's goal, God's purpose in saving us is 
I think, succinctly expressed in Romans 8, verse 29, which says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, what? Conformed to the image of his Son. This is God's purpose in saving us. It's to draw us to himself and then conform us into the image of his Son. Now, salvation, that becomes our life purpose as well. What we have to realize is conversion marks the beginning of this purpose, not the end. Or in other words, you may be a Christian now, but you haven't fully arrived at this intention. Your race is not over. You've yet to be perfected. This is true even for the Apostle Paul, and he expresses this same thought in three different ways with three different verbs. He says first, verse 12, not that I've already obtained it. In the Greek here, the object of this verb is is not really expressed. So it literally says, not that I have already obtained. It sounds kind of awkward, but it's really the same as us saying, it's not like I've arrived. Arrived at what? Well, no, we just say, I haven't arrived. And he's like, I haven't obtained. It means the same thing. He he hasn't reached the prize of Christlikeness. He's still a work in progress in that regard, and, and so are we. Secondly, he says, he's not already become perfect word perfect means mature, complete. One is made perfect or complete by, by reaching his goal. And Paul is continuing to say he hasn't yet reached that goal. He's not already perfect. He's still after what he's aiming for. And then thirdly, down in verse 13, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Here Paul uses a verb very similar to obtained. But with even more emphasis, he has not grasped completely his goal of Christ-likeness. At this point, you can almost imagine hearing the strain in his voice as he repeatedly declares that he's not yet achieved this spiritual perfection for which Christ laid hold of him. He realizes he hasn't reached the goal of perfect Christ-likeness and that it's a process and he presses on and you need to realize this as well. And hopefully you can see how disastrous it would be for a Christian to think otherwise. To think that you're done, you've arrived, you don't need to grow is a great deception that leads only to spiritual apathy, unchecked sin, disaster. Just imagine a runner who's miscounted his laps and he crosses the finish line. He thinks he's won. So he slows down, gets a breather, gets some water, he's waving to the crowd. It's not a, a slow victory lap. Meanwhile, there's a couple laps left, and everyone just passes him by, and he finishes in dead last. And so it goes for the Christian who mistakenly thinks that he or she has arrived, and the race is over. We can just just coast now from here on out. But many Christians, they act like this. They approach the Christian life like like it's game over. They've given their life to Jesus. They ask Jesus into their heart, and so they're good. They're good, right? They're not going to go to hell when they die now. They're they're safe. They've got nothing more to worry about. And so they treat believing in Jesus like the finish line instead of like really a starting line. And so lives of spiritual apathy are usually the result. But hopefully you can see how important it is to realize this realization you haven't arrived. You're in a race. And although God does the work and supplies the power, we still have to finish here. And we haven't achieved the goal which will be made full when we finished that of Christ-likeness. 
Now, that being said, you might be thinking like, okay, but does anyone really believe this? I mean, maybe you're sitting there thinking like, I, I feel like I sin all the time. Does anyone really believe that like they've achieved perfection, an actual state of even sinlessness, some complete perfection? Does someone actually like really believe that? Well, surprisingly, yes. Back in 1741, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, preached a sermon on Christian perfectionism from this text in Philippians 3. And even though Paul emphatically states in verse 12 that he is not perfect, he hasn't arrived, Wesley reasoned from down in verse 15, which we'll get to, that there must be some way in which we are perfect. And he went on to teach that believers can attain a form of perfection, which he called entire sanctification, which included, quote, from him, deliverance from inward as well as outward sin, end quote. This entire sanctification came by grace through faith, but it was a second work of grace after salvation. Something happened to you that took you to this higher level. Believers are still imperfect when it comes to mistakes, infirmities, ignorance, but they can attain a state of sinlessness. This teaching was later picked up by the holiness movement, and of course it fell right into the charismatic movement where they attached this second work of grace with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And today, for example, this is still, at least on paper, the position of the Nazarene church. Such teaching, though, can, can be quite dangerous. To tell Christians that they're perfect, and by that you mean sinless in practice, that you no longer have the flesh, there's no sinful war going on anymore. It's like convincing a soldier he's safe when he's still behind enemy lines. The, the message communicates to Christians that you're not really in a race or a battle here. It gives them a false sense of peace, which in turn lowers their guard, and the enemy just strolls right in. In reality, though, the New Testament teaches, while we're still here in this life, we are engaged in a very real spiritual war with Satan, the world, our own flesh, which is why the New Testament constantly tells us to always be on guard, all the time be on guard. It's because our race isn't over and our battle is not finished. Where does this confusion come from, though? I think I can explain one source. Because after all, what, what have we been learning here in Philippians 3? For 11 verses, we've pretty much been learning that in Christ, we are perfect. Through faith, we, we, we're united to Christ and we inherit certain blessings. These blessings include the complete forgiveness of sins and the gift of his own perfect righteousness. So now, if you're in Christ by faith, God views you as sinless as Christ and as righteous as Christ. And that's true. That's, that's the glory of the gospel. This is what the Bible refers to as our justification or our positional sanctification. We've been made holy. We've been made right with God. However, you'll only find confusion if you don't properly distinguish between positional sanctification and practical sanctification. So that question again, are we perfect in Christ right now? Well, positionally, yes, we have been made perfect in position. We are justified. We are forgiven. We are, in God's eyes, righteous by faith, all in Christ, all by virtue of Christ. This is grace gift. But practically, 
No, we are not perfect. Practically in our daily lives, we still sin. We're still unrighteous in many, in many ways, and I trust you get the difference. Though we are justified, we still have what, what Paul calls the sinful flesh. It's part of us. It's pumping out these sinful thoughts and desires. And as you give in to them, so you sin. And hence, we are very much not perfect. One day the flesh will be gone, and our redemption will be made truly complete. The Bible refers to that as glorification. That, that's the next step. And that day we will be perfect in practice and position. But today is not that day. That day comes after death. And until then, there's this kind of strange disconnect where we're perfect in position in Christ, but not in practice. Why did God leave us in such a state? He didn't have to. He could have taken us straight to heaven after our conversion and perfected us in body and in spirit. But rather, God is glorified when we, his children, now live and choose to deny the flesh, walk by the Spirit in this life, being progressively shaped into Christ's image. God is glorified by this. And this now becomes our our purpose for our new lives, to be progressively shaped into the image which we already have, the image of Christ. This is what the race of faith is all about. We haven't arrived We've not been made perfect in practice yet, but we, we press on. Romans 6, 11 through 12, Paul elsewhere says, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider that because it's true. That's the reality. But then he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. We're perfect in position, but the sin nature is still there. The flesh, it's pumping out lust. Don't let it reign anymore. Positionally, we are dead to sin in Christ. So practically, just live that way. Be who you are. Live that out. For now, the flesh remains, but let God's saving grace work itself out in your life, conforming you to Christ's image. Hebrews 12:14 says, Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Second Corinthians 7, 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's our race, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. A couple weeks ago, I gave a helpful illustration. Some of you said, and I'll give it again in case you weren't here. It is helpful. You're like a, before God, you're like a piece of marble. And at salvation, God quarries you. He cuts you out of the mountain. He brings you to his home. You are now his. He bought you. He set you apart. He has saved you, you could say. You are positionally sanctified. But you're still in rough shape. The image of Christ has only dimly been etched in you. You've got a long way to go. However, over time, by constant effort, All that doesn't belong is chipped away from you. And what's left behind is more and more increasingly the image of Christ. This is our progressive sanctification. And like I said, it's vital you understand the difference between our position in Christ and then our daily practice. Because we are in Christ, we now have a race, a battle against the flesh. We're not going to arrive in this life, but we press on. Now, before moving on, 
A few of you might be wondering, okay, if that's all true, why should I though, bother really trying to attain this goal if you're saying we're not going to reach it, right? Perfect Christ-likeness in practice. You're saying that's, we're not really going to get there, so what, why should I bother? In other words, like, why would you run a race if you know you can't win? Well, just to answer, first, just because you'll never arrive, that doesn't mean you can't make genuine progress. And remember, God is glorified by the progress you make. And secondly, just because you can't finish this race on your own, doesn't mean you're not going to finish. God will finish this race for you. At some point, you're going to die on the racetrack with the finish line still out on the horizon, but God promises to, to pick you up and carry you through. He will ensure that you finish the race. He will, and on that day, make you fully like Christ. And this is meant to encourage us to press on. God is glorified simply by our running. So, so carry on. And in a way, though, we don't really have a choice. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? The whole question, you know, why should I pursue Christ-likeness? doesn't even make sense as a question. It's like asking, why should a child grow? We don't ask that question. It makes no sense. It's also irrelevant. We don't ask that because a child doesn't have a choice. It's by definition, if a child is alive, he or she will grow. It's part of the definition of a child because they're alive. They will get bigger. They will get taller. They will get more mature. Yeah, maybe at different rates, but if they're alive, they will grow by nature. You don't have to convince them or reason with them to get taller. It just will happen. And so it goes for for believers. No convincing is really needed. If you're truly spiritually alive, you will grow. You will have signs of life. And so you don't, I don't need to really convince you. If you're truly alive, press on. This is all part of the right realization. And so have you made this right realization? Have you realized, like Paul, that you haven't arrived spiritually in practice, but God has placed you in a race now, and he wants you to carry on, not to slow down. But the race is in front of you. This is the first necessity for running the race, realizing you're in a race. That's obviously number one. Number two, you need the right response. I didn't say it was going to be complicated. You need the right response. And after expressing the right realization, Paul gives us the right response, which is what? Simply to press on, just to keep running. Back in verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on. And after he repeats himself in verse 13, he says, verse 14, again, I press on. This is the right response to press on. The word means to follow after, to keep up the chase, to pursue in order to obtain. The picture is a runner who is eagerly and aggressively trying to overtake another runner. And that should be the picture of your pursuit of Christ. You realize that you haven't reached him yet, so to speak, and you press on. Not, not passively. This is a picture of actively, energetically, passionately pursuing Christ, not just waiting for something to happen. This is the kid who's drinking milk, eating food, that they want to grow taller. You remember that stage maybe in high school, you, you felt like you wish you were taller, so you drink your milk, you eat protein. You try your best to grow. This is the picture that we're in a race, and we're striving after this growth because God gives us means of growth. 
And this becomes your life's mission to pursue Christ such that you exert some spiritual sweat. You get after it. Like Paul says over in Colossians 1:29, God supplies the power, right? We know this. God supplies the power, but we must still labor and strive after him to present others complete in Christ and the same for ourselves. Labor and strive. Those are words describing our race. Really, it's not all that different from, from what we learned back in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that? Let me just look back there. It's just a page before. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we learned back there, God's at work. He will work. It is his work. And he's providing all the power we need for growth. But you are still called to work out your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. We're already saved by grace apart from works. But now that you're saved, God wants you to get to work. So work it out. Live it out. How do you do this? Well, if you want the longer version, Go on our website, get those sermons, two sermons from Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You get the longer version. But in short, to send you a little reminder here, another illustration I used back then, I just love it. It's so helpful. Just picture a water wheel. You know, a water wheel is spinning in a river. Made to do work. You are like that water wheel. God created you to do work. And you got a, a water wheel back in, you know, back in the day, I guess, not so much today, but you could do a lot of work. That was meant to just to do a lot of different functions on a farm or homestead or whatever. A water wheel could do a lot for you. Of course, if it's in the river, its power comes from the river. It has to be immersed in the river. By itself, out of the river, it just sits there. It does nothing. It can do nothing apart from the river's power. But immersed in the river, it will automatically just get to work and produce work. And likewise, that, that's a picture of you after salvation. God has saved you. You're the water wheel. He wants you to get to work, but you have no power in yourself. You can't do anything yourself. Rather, you must immerse yourself in the power of God's river, which, though, he's already made to flow in us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is within us now, guiding us, directing us, supplying the power of God. Isn't that what we learned back in verse 11 of Philippians 3? The same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, that's flowing in us, so to speak, through the Holy Spirit. And what we must do is simply immerse ourselves in the Spirit's power. And then we will just automatically get to work. We will bear the, what? The fruit of the Spirit, which is a result of just walking by the Spirit. How do you do that? Well, God has given us many channels to access the Spirit's power. We have the Word of God as the main tributary through which the mind of Christ fills us and directs us. God has given us the the privilege of prayer that we might draw near in a time of need to find grace and strength. He's given us the church, through which we find mutual encouragement and edification. And more. There's more. But like I said, go back to Philippians 2 for the long version of that one. The question I want to ask you now is just, are, are you doing this? Are you pressing on? Are you actively and energetically working to pursue him. You're diving into the Bible, not, not just because it's some book, because this is the, the living, the active word of God. 
to rebuke you, to correct you, to shape you, to instruct you. You, you need that. Are you actively wrestling with God in prayer, seeking his will, his wisdom, his, his strength for that time of need? Are you memorizing scripture? You're planting his word in your heart that you're always battle ready when temptation comes. Are you engaged at church? You're living out the one another's. Where as iron sharpens iron, you can sharpen others and be sharpened by others during your time here. Does that describe you? Or have you stalled out? Maybe your pursuit of Christ could best be described as lazy, passive. If that's you, at least realize you're like the water wheel out of the water. You're you're not going to do much on your own, and and that's why. You're malfunctioning. And so get back to work. You've been given new life, so live out your new life, your position in Christ. Do so with concentration. We find in our text now, back in Philippians 3, a couple of quick sub-points here. We're talking about this right response to press on. But pressing on requires the right concentration. That that you could say is a first sub-point. Look at verse 13. Requires the right concentration. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on. Here we see the manner in which Paul presses on. He forgets what lies behind. He reaches forward to what lies ahead. And together, these two thoughts express the right concentration. There's a concentration in his response. Because that's what it takes to run well. You can try this in your seat right now if you want to run the risk of you know, probably embarrassing yourself. But just try flexing every single muscle in your body all at once. It takes, surprisingly, it takes all of your concentration. You have to think really hard to do that. And still, it's, it's still incredibly difficult. And if you take your mind off of that task... For an instant, you'll stop doing it. And so it goes with pursuing Christ. It's just this constant concentration is required. You, you can't get distracted. Be sober-minded always, or you will stop. Negatively, this concentration means, he says, forgetting what lies behind. I've been told that professional race car drivers, they memorize their track. They know every turn. And you know what's always on their mind? It's not the turn they just took but it's the turn coming up. And as soon as they make a turn, they forget about it. They forget about what lies behind because it doesn't matter. All that matters is the next turn. Even if you messed up a little, all that matters now, it's over. All that matters now is the next turn. And similarly in Christ, what matters most is is the next stage, the next turn. Specifically though, in the context here, Paul is talking about forgetting past successes. He's talking about not relying on your past successes. Now, granted, we don't want to get held up by past failures either. But primarily, he has in mind here relying on past successes. Remember, overall, he's building this contrast with the, the legalists. who that's, that's what they do. All they do is rely on their past achievements, deeds, accomplishments, successes, and they just coast through now. But no, we're in a progressive race seeking Christ. There's no room for resting on your past accomplishments. Just keeping the racing imagery alive, picture a race car driver. He's in a 500-lap race, and after after lap one, he's leading. He won the first lap. The fastest time, the first lap, amazing. 
And then, because he does, he did so well in lap number one, he's like, he just coasts the rest of the way. He's going to come, he's going to stall out pretty quickly. He's not going to come close to finishing that race. Look, lap one is over. And maybe you won lap one, great. But you've got to put all of your concentration now on the next 499 laps. There's still a long way to go. You can't, you can't just coast now because you did well on lap number one. So what about you? Are, are you coasting in your pursuit of Christ? There are some Christians who seem to largely fall back on their past accomplishments as evidence of their Christ-likeness. They'll tell you stories about when they were younger, their zeal for the Lord. They were, they were missionaries. They were evangelists. They were on fire for the Lord. And that's great. That is great. But what are they doing now? Are, are they coasting? Are you coasting? There's never a time. There's never an option to coast. And, hey, praise God if you've had some good laps. For sure, praise God for that. But, look, you're still in the ranks, and you still have to concentrate now on what's ahead. So first, forget what lies behind. Then positively, he says in verse 13, reach forward to what lies ahead. This verb for reaching forward pictures someone straining and striving with every muscle. I get the picture of, you know, two sprinters near the finish line, and they're, they're, they're stretching every muscle, leaning forward to try and burst across. You think they're going to fall down. And that, that should picture you in your race. You're, you're just so eager to get ahead. You strive for it with intense concentration. Your eyes fixed, not on what's behind, but what lies ahead, namely Christ himself. This brings us to another sub-point here. Pressing on requires the right concentration. Secondly, pressing on requires the right destination. Again, verse 12 in the middle. He says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I press on, or verse 14 now. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Any racer needs a goal. The goal is not behind. It's ahead. It's out in front. And he or she, you're meant to press on toward that goal. It's what drives the racer. And in verse 14 here, this word for goal was used to describe literally a a little wooden signpost that would stick at the end of a racetrack, and that would be that the racer would focus their eyes on that. It's their, their goal post. For believers, though, for us in this Christian race, what is the goal? Well, Paul expresses it in verse 12. He says to lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of by Christ. Why did Jesus lay hold of us? Well, to to bring us to him, to make us like him. Like we said earlier, the goal is is Christ-likeness, to be conformed into the image of his son. We were laid hold of by God for that reason. And now we are pursuing Christ to lay hold of him, to overtake him. To, to catch up to him, so to speak, that his image would be fully formed in us. And so we press on toward the goal. He also says, for the prize. There's a prize involved. What's the prize? In the ancient world, the victorious runner was summoned from the stadium floor up to the victor's booth and awarded the prize of a wreath, a, a wreath of leaves. Back then, a very prestigious symbol. And this upward call, though, Possibly that's in Paul's mind when he uses this phrase. But either way, it's a good picture for what he means. 
We press on for the prize of what? Verse 14. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The call is the prize. This is the call of conversion, which includes the call to become like Christ. We find here, actually, for us, the goal and the prize, they're essentially the same thing. That's not often the case, right? The runner runs toward a goal so that he may gain some other greater prize. But for us, the goal and the prize, they're both basically Christ-likeness. And being brought into God's presence, fully conformed formed into the image of Christ, that's our goal. And that's also our prize. That, that's the reward. And like we said before, we're not going to reach the goal ourselves. But God does award us the goal as a prize for those who are truly in Christ. And so we're encouraged to run, just do our best, pursue Christ, knowing that God's grace will carry us through. And after all, keep in mind, this, this is all by God's grace. We do our part because God calls us to, but it's not like we're earning anything here. Like Paul said, we press on to lay hold of Christ only because he first what? He first laid hold of us. He acted first. He grabbed us first. He, he put us in a race first. That's why we run. And also we, we press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call. But it's his call. Like he called us first. If he didn't issue that call, we would not be runners. So this is why we give God all the glory. It's still his grace in this race. We're called to do our part. We're called to work and to run now that we're saved. And we will, but we give him all the glory. And we take great comfort, though, knowing that even though we might not meet the goal on our own, God will give it to us as a prize by his grace. Don't forget Philippians 1.6, where Paul said at the beginning, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This truth gives us greater motivation to press on. We have a glorious destination ahead of us, a prize given to runners, those made runners in Christ. That's our race. And so far we've covered, number one, the right realization. Number two, the right response. Realizing you haven't arrived, you're in a race, you respond by pressing on, you do so with the right concentration, the right destination. All that's left is, lastly, number three, you need the right resolve. You need the right resolve. Let's finish up here, verses 15 and 16. He says again, verse 15, Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. We'll be brief here with these final verses, but Paul, what he's doing here, he's just now bringing us into the race. That's what he's doing. I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've been with us all throughout Philippians 3 here. I wonder if you've picked up on this, but ever since verse 3, Paul has been talking only about himself. He has been purely autobiographical up until this point. Starting in verse 3, He's only been reflecting on his personal experience. Back in verse 4, he says, he reflects how I, myself, might have confidence in the flesh. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Verse 8, 
I count all things as loss to know Jesus, my Lord, that I may gain Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it, but I press on. And there's more. You get the drift, right? So you see, this whole section, really, it's been all about Paul. But as we keep saying, his experience is normative, which is why we're still able to draw so much from it. He's merely reflecting the pattern of salvation and sanctification that he experienced, which should be true for us as well. But that being said, it's not here and finally until verse 15 that he finally by, turns the tables on us, basically calls us into his experience, which is the only Christian experience. He's calling us into the race to engage in this race. It's not just his race, it's ours as well. And so this right realization and the right response needs to be ours. This must be our resolve. This whole package must be our resolve. He says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, this attitude, this mindset that he's been describing, that the passionately pursuing Christ, that must be all of our mindset, our resolve. Now, quick side note, you might be wondering what he means when he says, as many as are perfect. Didn't he just finish saying, like, we're not perfect? He's definitely not perfect. So what does he mean? Well, the word for perfect can also be translated as mature. So it's possible he's saying as many as are mature have this attitude. But I think it's better just to see a play on words. Most likely, Paul is saying that believers, all true believers who are positionally perfect, well, they need to have this attitude of striving for that practical perfection, the Christ-likeness. You even catch, I think, a hint of sarcasm here against those who mistakenly thought they were totally perfect. And Paul's like, look, for those who are, who are truly perfect in Christ, you need to have this attitude of pursuing his perfection. But, verse 15, he says, if you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. You guys know Paul was passionate for the Lord. He pursued Christ with this white-hot intensity. He was sprinting in his race. But Paul knew that the only reason he was, he was like that was because God got a hold of him and just energized him. It was by his grace. And Paul also knew that not all received that same grace. And so we find him being compassionate to a degree with the stragglers. In humility, he recognizes God will be faithful to reveal to his children at the right time this attitude of pursuing Christ. One man plants, another man waters, but God causes the growth. And so this is Paul entrusting your growth to God, ultimately. But this still needs to be your resolve. This needs to be your attitude right now. Some have the attitude that it's okay to pursue Christ at a snail's pace. Like that, that's okay. Let's not get too zealous here. You don't want to break up a sweat. Like you're getting a little extreme. But if that's your attitude in the running the race, you have the wrong attitude. And recognize God will reveal to you the right attitude. If you are truly his child, he's going to help you. He will convict you. He will grow you. He will show you the right attitude. Just realize <clears throat> it might come the, the hard way. There's an easy way and a hard way to, to learn that lesson. And in love, look, because you are his child, 
God wants to see the image of Christ formed in you. And he's not going to tolerate a lazy runner for too long. If you're truly his child, he disciplines those whom he loves. Sometimes through his word, through his spirit, oftentimes through a little suffering, a little chastening. Horseback riders wear spurs for a reason. The horse isn't going fast enough. It's time for a little pain to make them remember they're, they're on a race too. They need to get back to running. And there's nothing like a little chastening to make someone go faster. If you are truly a child of God, he'll grow you. He'll, he'll take care of that. But recognize you need to have the right attitude from the beginning. You resolve to press on with haste. Don't delay. Don't slow down. And finally, he says in verse 16, However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. Keep living here means to line up, to follow in line. He's saying stay on the spiritual path. Track runners, they get disqualified if they they leave their little lane. And we too, we're on a narrow path. This is a narrow way. And he's saying just stay on it. Stay the course. You've come this far. Keep going. Don't deviate. Don't slow down. Don't fall back. Just keep going. And this just reiterates for us the right resolve. You need the right resolve. Every day, morning, evening, you need to speak to yourself, resolve in your heart and mind, I am to seek Christ today. I'm in a race. I need to pursue Christ today, every day, actively, to keep running. He says to keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. It's just a resolve to consistency. Like Hebrews 12 says, we're not just called to run. We're called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this is a resolve every day I'm going to keep running. I'm not slowing down. I'm not giving up. I'm pursuing Christ. And so I'll just ask, have you made this resolution? Have you settled and determined in your soul to passionately pursue Christ lifelong? This is what it means to follow Jesus. If you think being saved means asking Jesus into your heart 20 years ago and then just doing your own thing, going your own way, you are sorely deceived. Rather, in salvation, Christ himself, he lays hold of us. He turns us around. He puts us in a race. He gives us a spirit. He sets us off. And we embark on a lifelong race of glorifying God by becoming more like Christ. We're not going to arrive, but God's grace is sufficient. So have you made the right realization? You get this. Then have you made the right response? You're going to faithfully press on until the end. Make all of this your resolve. This morning, and then each and every day, resolved to pursue Christ. Well, I think a fitting conclusion, reminder, I can't improve upon the words. If I'd say the best racing analogy in scripture, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Let's press on.
Let's pray. Our great Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you this morning for this gracious race you've set us on. We confess that we were enemies. We were running headlong into destruction. We were passionately pursuing the course of the world. By nature, children of wrath, living in the darkness, and we loved it and would never know otherwise until you gave us, Lord, by your grace, this upward call. The call that stopped us dead in our tracks, turned us around, lifted the veil, pointed us to Christ, guaranteed our victory. We thank you for this call, Lord, the call of salvation. If there are any here who have not truly embraced Christ as their Lord and their Savior, committed to following him by faith alone for their whole lives, may they do so now. May you bring them alive right now. Make them a runner. And for us, Lord, we, we still need your grace and strength. For the, long, the road is long, and it can get weary. There's sin trying to trip us up and entangle us. The world allures us. The path is narrow. It's hard. But Lord, impassion us this morning. Strengthen us this morning. Give us courage to run with, with energy, the race set before us, with endurance, with the right concentration and destination in mind, that we're really fixing our eyes on Christ. We get what that means. He is the treasure. He is the prize and the goal. And so may we press on by your strength, by your grace, for your glory, for our good, for our benefit. This is your plan for us now. So we we take delight in it and we press on. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.